At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, I want to welcome Derek White Skycloud. He is an artist, writer, spiritual counselor, psychic medium, paranormal investigator, and teacher. His approach to counseling, mediumship, and spiritual healing incorporates techniques from both traditional practices and alternative methodologies, drawing from the great spirit, his spirit guides, and other elements of sound, song, drumming, and sacred ceremonies. Derek, thanks for joining us. How are you doing tonight? Oh, good. Thank you. I'm good. Well, I can barely hear you there. I don't know if your volume can go up a little bit or... I'll bring my volume up. I had to turn it down. Okay. You hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Much better. Okay, welcome to the show. You have a fascinating story, a fascinating background. You've had some amazing contact experiences, and I've always been very interested in how we interact with the spirit world, how we can better interact with the spirit world, and how it's kind of intertwined with the world of extraterrestrials. Um, I'd like to know first how you got started down your path, how you became involved with this, and um, did it all start at an early age for you? Uh, I grew up with it as a kid. Um, my Our house was haunted. Let me just do my glasses here quickly. Our house was haunted, and I grew up with the ghosts. I mean, my, they were my babysitters. So um, my mom and dad knew the house is haunted and it, the house itself belonged to people previously before me and so the ones that passed away that built the house were the ones that uh, kept an eye on me so my parents I mean I did have a a, a, a cup a cousin that would help me as far as my um, take care of me when I was a kid I was only like 10 years old so they kept she kept an eye on me and she's only 13 14. So, uh, yeah, but that was normal for me. I just thought invisible people were normal. I thought everybody saw them, you know, unusual story. Um, I'm originally from Manitoba in the eastern part of Canada. And it's actually one of the most uh, haunted provinces in Canada because uh, the colonization were colonized itself back in the 1650s. So it was well known for its hauntings uh, for many generations. 
Now, um, I understand you had some near-death experiences that may have enhanced your abilities? Uh, yeah, uh, that's when I was a young teenager. I got into a car accident. Um, I actually rolled my truck in a ditch, and when it was rolling, uh, I remember hanging on to the steering wheel, and the whole world went absolutely white. I remember looking at the green in the fields. I'm a farm kid growing up. But you look in the green field, and the next thing I'll tell you, it was a white world. Like just it was all nothing but white and light. And then I was become one with the steering wheel. And then suddenly it it flashed and changed. And then the the truck door opened it up it, up on its own. And because I was still hanging off the steering wheel, we didn't. We, I never had a seatbelt in my truck because having to drive a '64 Ford with a stick shift, <laughs> there's no seatbelts in that truck back then. And so uh, it basically, when it flipped sideways and it threw me down into the ground as it's going over sideways and it hit a telephone pole and then backed over me again and it rolled over and landed on its wheels, but the roof got caved in and I was, wasn't supposed to survive it. But when I uh, got thrown out, I hit my head on the ground really hard. And uh, when, I got, I, when I woke up and the first thing I was going to, I was upset about because my truck even though it landed on its wheels and the roof caved in on the driver's side, I thought my travel, my I thought my father was going to get mad at me because he gave me that truck for my birthday. And uh, but you know I had to deal with it. And well, I got home. My dad said he'd rather see me okay and the truck can be replaced, but he can't replace the son. But in the meantime, when I when I was there, uh, standing there, I had blood coming off down my forehead. But my mother, when she checked me out, there was no cuts. So uh, many years later, a lady came up to me one day and said to me that I went through stigmata, that I survived a near-death experience. Very interesting. Now, um, after that, you, you had uh, enhanced uh, abilities or the abilities you already had became more enhanced? Yeah, basically anytime anybody goes through traumatic, I didn't really know this until after through the years, but when, after people still go through traumatic accidents, um, especially with the head, because it goes through the trauma and things, oh, like, you know, you and the people used to always say, give your head a shake, and, or it feels like something's loose in there, so to speak. What it is, is that uh, you've, what we've done, we've opened up the pineal gland more and you become more sensitive. Anytime anybody's ever had a car accident, uh, and hit their heads by some means. And then suddenly they'll, they'll say, with a matter of weeks, they'll all of a sudden say they feel like they're more sensitive to energy around them, people, that sort of thing. Uh, start feeling connections with spirits. They don't know why. They've never, never experienced that before. It's because it opened up the brain. And the brain starts to uh, visualize what, they, what your eyes see. So I find that that's what they call the near-death near death experience where anyone's going through trauma. Now, you said uh, from an early age you could sort of see the spirit world. Were you communicating with spirits at a young age? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with them. I, I remember seeing myself being born. Um, many years later, I told my mom, I said, I saw myself being born. I described it, that I was... Uh, I remember seeing myself in a, it looked like I was inside of a movie theater. There's no audience, um, but I was standing on a stage and the whole wall was, see, you just visualize yourself being in a movie theater and you're on a stage and you're watching the whole scene 
uh, happening, watching this woman having a baby in the hospital on a gurney. And the doctor saying to the woman, he's not breathing, even though the child's already out. And there's a man standing next to me on the platform in biblical clothing, asking me if I want to go with this parent, this woman, this family. And I looked at the family and I observed the baby. I never felt like, oh my God, there's a baby. You know, oh my God, something's going to happen to him. I never felt that emotion. All I felt was, okay, I'll give it a shot. And next thing I know, I was born. Like my, my, my spirit, my soul automatically went there. Because as soon as and I tell people this, and something I learned from spirit, as soon as the umbilical cord is about to be cut, that's when the soul enters. The soul is never in the baby. The soul does not enter the child while it's still in the mother in its mother's womb. The soul enters when the umbilical cord is being cut. It's called the life source. So, but when I did breathe, I described the whole thing to my mom. I even knew the doctor's name. And I told my mom what I had seen and how it's described that. She said, there's no way anyone would have, should have seen that. She says, no way. And I described everything in that room, what it looked like to me. So my mother was totally blown away. So there have been people like me that can remember watching themselves being born or choosing a parent. And I did see that for the very first time in my life. And I've never forgotten that day. And you said you always just thought it was a, a sort of a normal thing to, to have these abilities. Yeah. I thought it was normal like everybody else, because I thought all the kids could see ghosts or all the kids can see certain things that most average kids, because you don't, you're not questioning anyone. Did you see that? It's more like, Oh, okay, that's normal. And to me, when I talk to a person, say yourself, say you're a ghost, you're, you're more transparent than solid, but you could be standing in my room in my house and I'm talking and you're talking to me like a conversation or we're chatting back and forth. Somebody walks in the room and they're saying, who are you talking to? Um, that person there. So, so, so there's nobody there. Next thing you know, like, Oh, okay. They think they're the crazy kid. So I have to somehow say, oh, okay, just a minute. I'm just, you know, talking to my imaginary friend. But that's normal for, all, for a lot of kids that way. And that's how I went through the experience. And through that as well, I went through the experience of the Ouija board at the same time. It wasn't my Ouija board. It was somebody else's. <clears throat> so, you know, it helped, up, helped open up even more stuff for me to see. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience with the Ouija board? Um, for me, it was uh, when I was at two twin brothers' uh, birthday party. I was again, I was 10, 11 years of age. I was 11 then, and uh, I went to their house, and they and like there's a lot of kids that were there at the time, but I guess at the end of the day, there was just the two of us left plus the twin brothers, and they wanted to play a game or some sort of a game. And they got a Ouija board for their birthday. And these boys are from England. Originally, they, their parents moved to Canada. And this is again in Winnipeg. And I was sitting on, there were two couches, one on this side and one over here. And the twin brothers were on one side of the room. And, and me and another boy was sitting on the right side, on the opposite side. But the boy that's sitting next to me was Jewish. Now, I'm not using as a as a negative, but the boy was very psychically sensitive himself same age as me and 
and the boys, as soon as they said, well, we're going to have to play this game, Ouija board. Well, for some reason, this boy knew more about it than I did. I had no idea what it was for. But something about my chest feeling not good when they opened up the board. Like, I didn't feel good about something that was playing, which is not, you know, why, why should I feel uneasy about them playing that specific kind of game? And yet, it didn't feel good. Well, the twin boys were both the game, and the Jewish boy said, I, uh, I refuse to play that game. He said, it's called the, the devil's board. And the boy is going, ah, you're crazy, you're crazy. How do you know? Well, the, boy, the young Jewish boy says, he's got his star of David. He's wearing it around his neck, and he says, I can prove it. I can take this and put it on top of the board, and I'll ask the board, if you're of God's light, you won't burn. But if you're the devil, you will burn. And he placed the star of David on top of the board. All of us witnessed smoke coming out from all four corners of all four sides of the Ouija board. And it smelled like burning wood because it was on a coffee table made of wood. And one of the, one of the twin brothers shoved the paper, like just pushed it off the table. And there was a black mark burn on that uh, coffee table. After that, I got up. I made a, mad, made a mad dash out of the house. I never came back to that house ever again. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. Now, you understand you've also, um, over the years, you've had some very profound synchronistic um, encounters with people, um, just different encounters that have shaped, um, I guess, the way you do your work now. Um, you've met some very interesting um, and otherworldly people, right? Through the years, I have. Uh, if you're talking about UFOs, yeah. Um, how that started with me on that one, I was living in Winnipeg again. Uh, no, living in Brandon, <clears throat> which is another town of uh, part of Winnipeg. And uh, I remember, I don't remember even waking up. I remember just um, like my, my sister and I both had a bunk bed. And so she slept at the bottom, I slept at the top. And I remember, all I remember is looking out the window and of, our, of our bedroom. And I'm staring outside. I remember seeing this uh, rainbow lights flashing across the sky. Like it was like, it looked like an orb, not an orb, but like a, like a, like a cigar shape, not cigar, sorry, oval shape, uh, like a squished triangle shooting across the sky, but it looked like rainbow colors following it from behind and it's shooting across like really fast. And I kept staring at that and going, oh, wow, that's cool. The next thing you know, I'm outside my house, standing on my front lawn. That's how I it so quickly remembered. I can remember almost like I'm just there, and then I'm outside of my front lawn of my house. Like, how did I get outside all of a sudden? And I looked around, and I'm going like, oh, what's going on here? Like, what the, you know? And I mean, you're again, you're just a kid. So this is back in 1967. They call the Earth Centennial. Never forget that day, that year. But uh, I got into the house. Like our, we didn't lock our doors. Our family never locked doors back then. You just that's just the way it was. You just walked right in back in the house. But I went into the bedroom and I woke my mom up and I said, "Mom, mom, I saw something shooting going across the sky." Now. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as UFO because nobody knew what a UFO was. All I said, I saw something go across the sky and look like a rainbow, shooting rainbows. And 
my mom figured pretty well, you know, someone actually said through the conversation, oh, that's a UFO. Well, how do you know? Uh, and then I, I said to my mom, well, that's what I saw. You know, I, I saw this thing shooting across the sky, mom. And she goes, well, it, being, a, being a mother and a child, you know, so talking to a child, thinking, yeah, he has great imagination. That afternoon, it never, it would, nothing was ever spoken about it since, but with that afternoon, I got into my mom and I, or she was going to go downtown, go shopping. And uh, she wanted to come with her. And so I went along, we went into the bus, we took the bus downtown. My mom got behind the seat, behind the bus driver, and I was just sitting across from her in the front. And the bus driver back in those years, the buses didn't have radios in their dash. They bring their own transistor radio. So he placed his transistor radio on the dash and he was just stopping for a little bit of a break before he took off. And he listened to the radio and the news was on and it said that the news media stated there was over a thousand phone calls at the station, sightings of UFO going across the sky. Then I found out later years later that there was a fellow who actually was a that got burnt or abducted um not abducted it's more like he he himself already seen the a ufo in falcon lake which is part of a part of uh, manitoba and he was he didn't live too far from us and he got burned in the chest and um apparently it was very traumatic for him but he actually seen the UFO himself up front, like right in his face, no more than 10 feet. He was standing right next to it. But when he said he looked inside, there's nobody in there. So he thought there wasn't anybody in there. Uh, but when it took off, apparently it burned him. And so he had a, his whole chest got burnt and he ended up getting quite sick. For many, many years, a lot of people thought that he was the only one that knew about uh, UFO. We had well over a thousand phone calls, like I said, and I'm one of those kids that actually experienced it. I remember being on. I remember being on the ship. That's the first time. And many, many years later, back in 2000, I was taken again. But this time, as a volunteer, like I volunteered through the out the years, I remember them taking me, and they're examining me, but I never paid much attention to it. And then, <clears throat> in the year 2000, is when it became more of an invitation to come. Do you remember what the, the ship looked like? Uh, well, the bigger one, the bigger ship, like we went from one small ship to the bigger ship. Um, the smaller one uh, was more like, uh, again, like as if it's a squished triangle. Uh, but it had, uh, like it had different kinds of small little thin windows going across. And in the center, <clears throat> In the center of it, it had uh, in the center it had it looked like a, a inside rainbow spinning. So it was spinning inside the center, like it, it, it shouldn't look like a donut. You know how the donuts look like inside, except this the roof was like this closed, but the bottom was open because when it sh when it shot up upwards, you can see the spinning of colors, multicolors of the rainbow inside. And I can I can never forget that day. I know the sound of it. I can hear it. It's like a, it was really, really quiet. It sounded like it hummed and I could hear it because it was that close. Because remember when they dropped me off, I'll never forget. I can never forget that day. But when um, it was one ship going into another ship, but when they came to get me, 
the first time when I saw them, I didn't recognize them at first because when I did see them, they were wearing white. Like it looked like a white full jumpsuit uniform and their heads look like that, except it was white. And when I found out later, I'm talking to them and they're talking to me, but somehow it was like, I guess by thought, so to speak, but uh, I thought that's them talking to me. And uh, they asked me if I want to come for a ride. And I said, sure. And I said, uh, is this how you guys look? And they said, no, just a minute. And they, they, I could hear this, like as if it's like an unbuckled or like a sound of air. And next thing they took off their helmet, it was actually a helmet, a full-size helmet. And the guy that was under the helmet had a beard, long hair, blue, bright blue eyes, human like us, standing nine feet tall. Okay, like he was like looking up that way. Like you look at your, if you actually visualize this, the room that you're in right now, how high is your ceiling? At a foot. Okay, because average rooms are eight feet. Add another foot to that, that's how tall they were. Their hands are huge, like that, right? Anyways, there was um, three of them that I met. It wasn't just one, three of them. And how I seen them from a distance at first is because I was coming, they, they got me to come out of my house. My wife was right behind me outside. And this was in the morning. And I'm walking up, and they're coming up from the, over a small little hill. And uh, they, they said, hi, Derek, how are you doing? I said, good, do I know you? Well, you should, don't you remember me? And he, he mentioned, he named himself Zial. And I said, he sounds familiar, but I just somehow, my mind just wasn't there. I'd thinking about it until I saw his face and went, oh, yeah. But the thing is that when you're a kid, you forget things after because you're not, really holding on to things that were important to you. But you have a suspicion that something's in the back of your mind thinking, I somehow I know him from somewhere, but I don't, I'm not sure where, which made a whole lot of sense. He knew who I was, um, knowing everything about me. So anyways, he asked me if I want to go for a ride and for a couple hours. And I said, where? On the ship. Maybe I'll take you to our planet. You get to see our planet. I said, your kid. I said, it's going to take days. He goes, no, just a matter of a few minutes. We'll be there. And I'm going like, okay. And he said, I'll show you how it works. And does your lovely wife want to come along? And I asked Marina, I got looking behind her. And she would come and she goes, no, you have fun. Like as if she knew, right? So she, she stayed behind and I got on the ship. And uh, they took me around. Um, they showed me the, the, every place. I mean, it was people living on it. Like they went from one small ship, went to small ship to the big ship. We transferred one to the other. It didn't take long. It was like, like this, like once you got on it, you sat down. I didn't wear a seatbelt. It was like, it was down. It held me like, a, it felt like air holding me there. And they went straight up into the next ship. The cool part was cloaking. Now, 
this is the part really gets me because I couldn't figure how come nobody's ever seen the ship, the big, big, big ship. I said, where is the big, how, do, how come nobody sees the big ship? Cloaking. They knew how to cloak their ships in the sky behind the clouds, and they actually have a cloaking system that looks like clouds. So they're in the sky in the clouds all the time. That's why if you look at some of the things that look kind of hazy, but it looks like a cloud, but you're not sure if it's a cloud, or you get some weird looking for, uh, formations in the clouds, and it doesn't make any sense, that's not something what clouds really do, that's them in there. That's where he. That's where they work. On the bigger ship, I asked him how many people were on the ship. He says 330,000 people. So that that's how many are on the ship. Everything from pilots to everything that they do. Um, they're really into organic, like we call organic. They're naturalists. They... Uh, they try to take care. And one thing they did tell me, they, they, we, they are responsible to help keep the peace and that they don't want us to do any harm to the earth because they are the ones that help develop it. They are the ones that help to populate it. Um, that's what makes it so interesting, like I said before. And, and when they took me around, they showed me that the one big, huge lab. It was a huge place. I remember walking in around the corner, and there was a scientist. I guess the guy's wearing like a white um, coat. And uh, he actually had this similar like this. And he's doing this, you know. And then he would face it towards the people. There was actually three people inside this big, huge cylinder vat and it was uh oh it's about three and a half four feet tall high and it was it was stainless steel and they had these little they look like cushion headrests and they're grooved and they go around in a circle and there was three people individually inside this gel it looked like gel like a brown looked like it looked like almost like brown chocolate and they were inside and all you can see is their heads laying back, like on the cushion, and they're just eyes are closed, and they're just there. And I said, "Well, where are these guys from?" Oh, different parts of the world of of the Earth. And I said, "Well, why are they here?" Uh, they're we're actually getting them better. And apparently, all three of them were quite sick, quite ill. There's, that was incurable, and according to doctors, and so they actually had them in that vat curing their disease so but I said well how come you're just curing these three because they need them they are just like me we are the messengers and so they are taking care of us which made a whole lot of sense I got I'll tell you why later on and anyways um, I seen that and then I saw the doctor and the doctor Look like I, I looked up at him first and I said, Deepak Chopra? Like, because he looked like Deepak Chopra, the young version of him. And he goes, No, I'm not him. He says, He's my doppelganger. Like, basically, he's the original person that actually has a Deepak Chopra look. And Deepak, he's, that's because the doctor 
gave a piece of his DNA to uh, others out there to look just like Deepak Chopra. But he acted a little bit differently, but he looked just like him. I was like, what the? I've never met Deepak Chopra, but I hear it's like, what's he doing over here? Because I thought maybe he was a doctor, like Deepak himself. And he goes, no. But uh, anyways, um, uh, let's see what else is there. And then I was, they got me to sit down and they gave me this little drink in a small cup. And I drank it and it was, had a really weird taste to it. So a couple months later, a couple minutes later, uh, they, I started feeling like I was going to throw up. Like it, but it felt like not throw up action as in throw up lots of stuff. Just I felt like something was coming out of my throat. And I was going like, what the hell? Oh. And I was trying to, and then it felt like I was, and then all of a sudden I felt something coming out. I reached in my mouth and I thought maybe it was a hair, like one of my own hairs because I got long hair. And I found out later that it was, uh, I was pulling out more in my throat. And all of a sudden, like I had this, and as I'm pulling it out, it looked like a big knot. And there was like a whole bunch of threads in there. Like fiber, like, you know, like fiber optic? That's what it looked like. So I took it out and I'm going like, what the hell is this? I don't want this in my hand. I want nobody to see this. So I'm looking around to find some way to get rid of this thing. And I see something that looked like garbage and I went, dropped it in there. And I, I walk, pretend as if nothing's ever happened. I'm walking around. This lady comes in the room. She walks in and she sees me. Like she was greeted first. And then she sees me. She goes, Derek, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time. She gives me a big hug. Oh, it's been so long. And and I said, oh, good. I'm good. Um, but you're not trying to insult anybody, but you're, you're, again, saying, how do I know you? But they knew me quite well. So anyways, she says, how are you doing? I says, oh, not bad. And then she says, let me, let me, just give me your hand for a minute. She held on to my hand. She goes, oh, my goodness. She says, you don't have a life anymore. What did you do? I said, what did I do? What do you mean, what did I do? She goes, what did you do with your implant? And I said, what implant? What are you talking about implant? She goes, did you just finish throwing, did you get regurgitating something up out of your throat? And I said, yeah. Where'd you put it? And I said, it's over there. And she looks inside. She goes, that's an old implant. You're going to get something new. We're going to put new ones in there with, for, for to help you. She says, you have to have a new implant so that we know exactly where you are, as well as so that we can make sure your health is good. And I said, okay. Um, she said, because if you don't have an implant, she says, you're not going to have a life. And I thought, okay, fine. So they took me to this room, and they put me on a gurney, and they got me to raise my left leg. I dropped my pants. <laughs> Dropped my pants and I and uh, was in, and I was laying there on the gurney and they got me to raise my left leg up and they put an implant right there behind the thigh on the left of my leg, so I got an implant in there. And also when that was that was very uncomfortable that was very uncomfortable because I was going like ow out hurts you know like and they said just take a breath and they're trying to find a place to place it so it stays there. And it looked like a little bean, shaped like a little tiny bean. But 
it has a memory and once it goes into the skin it will attach itself to the skin so it stays there so it feels like there's a lump in your blade then they also gave me another one they said now we have to put something inside your nasal passage and, we're, and we want to insert this in and they took a little tiny not that big but close enough a little bit smaller and they put this up my nose with a small uh, thing like it looked like something that they would give a, a horse you know they, they put the pellet in there and they put it down the side of the throat and shove it in well they didn't say anything my nose but they raised it up and turned it sideways like they brought it up this way dropped it and then popped it in and i went ah i could feel this so uncomfortable like it was like it was like i could i couldn't breathe through this one and they said it will go away after the pressure will go away because i could feel it squeezing in my head in my no, it's a passage. And they said, that's a locator. They said, well, we can find you all the time. She says, but it'll eventually go away. She said, you might find when you have it, when you, when, you, when you go home and have a shower, you may notice something come from your nose after, but don't be upset about it. So, okay, fine. And it was silvery in color when they put it in. Like It almost looked like lead coating, but it wasn't lead. So when I was in the show, when I did get home after, um, just, just give a quick sh short story on that part. But when I did get home, uh, I went for a shower and I sneezed in the shower and out came this little, this liquid, the silver liquid out of my nasal passage. And then it washed itself away through the water, through the rain showers. But um, they did show me a lot of things inside the uh, ship, which I will be describing that later on um, at the conference and different things that happened there but at the end before i left they gave me a crystal and it's about that long but it's a flat sided and it's shaped like ribbings of a of a of a, of a um to me in a way it reminds me of skin of a snake but it's actually it looks like glass but it's a crystal and it's all shaped and combed and i saw them they had that in their hand. They put it in, the, in a panel, and they slightly turned it. And then on the screen, there's a flat screen TV, a big, huge one. And they're showing me everything about, and then all the analysis, all my history, all my past, everything's all of me in that crystal. And uh, they had two of them in the panel. One came out, they kept one, and they handed me the other one. They said, this is yours. This is all about you. They said, don't lose this. So... I'm asking, like, why do I have to keep this? And they said, because it stays with you. So everything that you do here, it's recording. So you can put it in your cabinet, you can put it in your cupboard, wherever you want. It'll always record you. So I've always, I kept it. I came home with it and I've been using it. So I can, I can actually contact them through that. I can look at the sky and raise my crystal into the sky and communicate with them with that. But I took it home with me. I got it. Oh, wow. So you still actually have this item. I got the item. They gave it to me. I took it home, and there are people that have seen it, have touched it, and every time they touch it, they're going like, "Oh my God, what is what is in that thing?" I said, "Well, you'll find that that's because it's not the same. It's not from this earth. Because sometimes people say it feels very like it's sparking my hands and won't stop sparking." I said, "Because you're not the bearer of holding the one that holds that crystal." That's amazing. Now, all the communication was it done uh, telepathically? Verbally, yeah, they're verbally or talking to me verbally like a regular person. Now, I asked them about one thing, and I will share that with you. Um, 
there's a lot of very tall people. I mean, I learned a lot from them. A lot of very tall people there. They live for a thousand years. Their lifespan is a thousand years. And uh, so the time that I talking, I was talking to Ziel, he was 500 something years old. And, um, but they've known, like, she's, like they said, they've known me for a long, long time. They haven't known that. Here's the cool part. Cause I asked them, I said, have I only been here once with you guys? And they said, Oh no, no, many times. Cause you've had lifetimes before and we followed you. I said, how can you trace that parental birth and death? And then we follow there. You all, you know, they said you have, what you call a, a, um, they call it sereptile, they call it sereptile, a sereptile energy. And a sereptile energy follows your, everybody has an organic energy pattern. And they follow the sereptile energy again. And now I don't know the word what sereptile means, but they told me that's what it was. And it's called sereptile energy pattern. And they follow your energy pattern. Anytime you pass away, you're reborn again, they can find it. They trace you where you are and they come and get you again. I've been with them for five lifetimes. Wow. Now, did they indicate to you, um, I guess, what race they are? And they are. You, you said they're all humanoid type being. They are called the Anunnaki. Some people call them Nephilim. Some people call them. They're not the the same type of people that were. Like I, I remember questioning that because I said, "Are you the same kind of people that they talk about in Egypt?" And they said, "Those are are the ancestors." We are not them. The ones that existed back then were violent. Some were peaceful. Some were not. Um, they also had their own beliefs. They Some did not agree to disagree. But they also never tried to create any harm to humans. They helped create the humankind. They are one of the original birthers of the earth. So they're the ones that help create mankind. So you said the ones in Egypt were a, a sort of, um, I guess, hybrid uh, of these beings. Were yep. these the ones with the elongated skulls? Yep. Yeah, they are. I never did see Ziel's head with elongated skull because it, when I looked at him, it looked normal. But if you think about it, I'm thinking about myself. Okay. If you wear that type of a helmet on your head, you would need to wear something like that, right? Because it gives you room for your head to fit. I asked him why he had that kind of a helmet on his head. And he said, because the sun, our sun's rays hurts their eyes because there's so much oxidants in the air that's done damage to the sun that their eyes can't handle it. And that's what makes it so different. Um, and even the oxygen is different, but their oxygen is so similar to their planet. How accurate is the, um, I guess, how we've recently interp interpreted the um, Sumerian mythos with, you know, Enlil and Enki, the two brothers that uh, helped genetically modify the human race and there was a falling out. I mean, is, is that somewhat accurate as to what There's, happened? There are more than just Enlil and Enki. Um, there are others that were, they, they, they apparently what they've done, they removed the records and it was not them that removed the records. 
it was the Egyptians that removed the records. There were some people that are very jealous of, um, they were like called the high priests. They're the ones that were jealous of, of Enlil and them. And they basically, um, uh, there was a, a many different kinds of crypts inside the pyramids that they, or the tombs that they've actually had done writings on, but those, those have been destroyed. So they said there's, because there's still more stories to it, but there's only limitations and all of a sudden there's other uh, people that try to destroy the history. And to this day, they're still trying to destroy the history of other countries. They don't want the truth out that who are the real gods, so to speak. They call themselves the gods, but they were just, they were specifically scientists. They were specifically birthers. They were a try. And our planet is the youngest planet in the universe, and they were trying to help to uh, excel the human humankind to better itself. And so that's why, if you look at some of your basketball players, for example, okay, you got some basketball players that are almost eight feet tall. Those are the closest to the to the to the great to the closest to the real DNA of the. Anunnaki, okay, of the Nephilim. They are the closest to the relatives. Okay, that's part of their DNA. It's not because of some genetic, you name it, how come they this, genetic that. No, that's from them up there. Did they originally come here for gold and, um, you know, create us as slaves to mine their gold? The, the mining part they needed us to mine. Um, they, but the men were never beaten and, you know, clubbed, that sort of thing. That was never that way. They needed the gold, yes, but the gold was used as a food and it was used as a fuel. So it wasn't just used, and, and also it's a positive energy. Gold was used quite a lot in um, their jewelry. Like not as much what you would see here, but it's more like a breastplate. And they would actually mix the gold with another stone called the lapis lazuli. Okay, and it actually also has a gold fleck in it. And actually, it helped enhance your intuition, your psychic skill. But also, they believed that was a protector. So, uh, but they also used other types of stones that was in the earth, and they—that's how they would help. Uh, mobile uh, oxidations, like I think they call them oxidants, they would use them to mobile things and carry things, and they'd use them as a fuel. But it was never used, they, they were, humankind was never abused. When, when you hear the word slaves, they weren't slave slaves, they were just needed to do this because the, 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 the reason why the Anunnaki could not do it themselves because the caves are too small, too large, too small for them to go inside most average people that were back in those years were between uh, third uh, nine feet to 13 feet tall and there was the call and they would call the warriors those are the soldiers and they were between uh, 15 16 feet to 25 feet tall those are the giants but those are the warriors those are the soldiers so there's two kinds that that where there are the scientists and there's ones like to be always at war. Our planet has been attacked twice. 
by other aliens, extraterrestrials, because they're at war with these guys. And that's why you hear the story about the dinosaurs being wiped out. It's because it wasn't because of earthquakes. It's because of the starships and they were bombing them. The, the dinosaurs did exist at the same time and so did humankind. Humankind did not come just as a Cro-Magnon and then they birthed into the next group growing up. They were totally separate being entities. So a Cro-Magnon man was Cro-Magnon man. He didn't, he didn't develop from the chimpanzee to this to this. They took the idea from the chimpanzee, for example, to make mankind walk. But they didn't make Cro-Magnon man that way. This was a different group of people that Cro-Magnon man was developed. When the Anunnaki showed up, they made they wanted to make a better hybrid human being. So we they became they helped us become more intelligent. But there's a group of people that got tainted in the intelligence, and they decided to, and that's where Atlantis comes in. Okay, because the Anunnaki are also part of Atlantis at the time. But there's also these guys that got involved. And they are the ones that taught the negativeness of control. Those would be the greys? Yeah, the greys are mind controllers. And they got involved, and they and they were, they never understood the crystal, uh, crystals. All they understood was, all they understood was control. They wanted to, and they wanted, they needed people like us to, for them to develop so they can actually uh, take, or hybrid them, their kind, because uh, they learned this from the Anunnaki, because their planet was dying out, and they needed help, so they got involved. But the Anunnaki wouldn't let them do to do the same thing, because to them that was changing the features. So they, there was a war between those two for a while. Uh, that's why they got sneaky after, them, and they were they got sneaky to the point that they they had to hurriedly find a way to take people and to uh, inbred women. And then take the take the fetus really quick, and then race it to that planet, so they can actually make it look hybrid. So everybody, there are what they did say. There's over six hundred types of extraterrestrial beings in our universes. Universes. There's more than one. Where I went to the planet, it didn't go from Earth to a planet. It went from Earth to Orion's belt, the three stars, went through the three stars into another black hole. You went through there and you phased through. Because if you ever watch a, a starship going across the sky, heading towards the three stars at Orion's belt, all of a sudden you don't see the ship anymore. It's gone. Because their universe is on the other side. There's dimension within dimension within dimension. So if you talk about how would you say, how would you use those words? Um, time, how, how people, people, always talk, people have always talked about time. How can you go from here to Mars? And how come it takes so long to get there? Because the people have not really understood time. All they know is the physical time. But if you create a ship that's not fueled by common Earth fuel, made by something else that makes the ship go quicker, you could be on that planet Mars before you know it. Um, but they found other means and ways to, to make that trip to Mars without even using a ship. Speaking of like wormhole technology. Same thing. 
very similar to that. They're going to go in, over, and you're done. You're in. There's only certain things that certain people cannot handle. Some of the our, our physical body structures cannot handle certain planets. We would just basically die. We can't handle being gone too long without proper oxygen. Certain foods that we eat, other foods cannot, they don't exist. Those particular type of foods don't exist in other planets. So what they would do is they would meld our physical body through a wall and examine us um, and examine our ethereal body on their boat, on their ship, and then bring us back, back into the bed. And some ships can actually take us from our beds or wherever we're tra traveling and examine us physically and return us. But whenever they're examining you, you're not the only person on the ship because there have been people that have been actually have returned wearing somebody else's pajamas. And you're not even in your and you're not even at home sleeping in bed in your own pajamas you're actually probably could be on the road going to work and all of a sudden you're not there and you wear pajamas in a car no so because these guys here don't have the time to waste on you to get you back to where you are all they know is they're in a hurry to examine you and they bring then bring you back but they don't think about why did I put this person in a pair of pajamas where those don't, 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 those don't belong to them? Because they, they're not there. To, you're not the fashion police, so to speak. They're just there to get you examined and get you back. These Anunnaki beings, um, do you think that someday that they'll return and we'll have open contact with them? They'll walk amongst us again? Do you think we'll see this any time in our lifetime? They have returned already. And how I know this, because when I was... Uh, tell my story to Johnny Enoch, a good friend of mine. He interviewed me a couple years back. And uh, he was doing a UFO conference here in Vancouver. And uh, uh, when he was talking about me in his presentation, mentioned, about, mentioned me about part of, my his, part of his presentation. And then there was a fellow who asked me if he could talk to me outside. Uh, when I got time, so I stepped outside with him, and he introduced himself to me. We both, I found out that he has the same, similar person that took him on the ship. They're also the Anunnaki, and he's from France. So he never knew anything about me, but he was there specifically. So the story was so similar, because anything I talked about, he talked about right bang on. We we're talking about the same, similar people, same place. But he's never been on the sh he's never been on the planet. He's been on the ship, never been on the planet. It seems like we are leading up to something. I know that there is a rising in consciousness worldwide going on right now. Um, there's so so much talk about open talk about UFOs and extraterrestrials in the media that we've never heard before. It feels to me like we're being prepared for something like there is something big on the horizon. Um, like I said, do you think that, you know, it'll be open communication like uh, in the times of Atlantis or pre-dynastic Egypt where they were con you know, communicating with these beings openly? If you look at some of these guys that actually are have been trans mediums in the past, they also, they also talk about, Atlantis rising. They talk about um, more research, and you're going to find more hidden uh, caverns, hidden caves, 
uh, hidden high, uh, hidden places that were never shared uh, from the past. It's because humankind has to learn to catch up first. If they brought it out back into the 1950s, say if something like this ever happened, they the public would never understand. Period, because they never understood understood the technology. They would be too frightened about the technology. If you think about it, 1971 to 73, a digital clock was developed. A digital clock was developed. It never existed before, right? Our computers were a size of a house. How come all of a sudden back in the 1980s, everything went from a room size computer to that? Who taught them that? There's no way anybody from Japan, there's no way anybody from the United States, nobody from Canada, nobody from any parts of the world can say to you, oh, I micro-sized this to this. Uh-uh. Who were the helpers? They were. They helped develop that for us because in exchange, they were showing the rest of the world that we can develop it and use it in the same way, in the same manner as they did. And I'll tell you why. They showed me a flat screen TVs in their ships long before what we even had a flat screen TV. Okay. Years before even they were developed. How come I seen a flat screen TV on their ship when I was a kid and yet there's flat screen TVs now are just developed maybe the last 10 years. Does that make any sense? No. Why? Because they're saying now it's time. Here's how you learn. And guess who teaches them? We, they teach us in our dreams. They come to us in our consciousness and they show us this is what we want you to do. That's why they have so many different types of people. Uh, you hear their story. Anybody who's ever developed anything that's all to do with either if that's extraterrestrial related or anybody's ever developed something that's actually electronic. And the first that person's, the first thing that person's going to say is, I don't know why I had a dream about it. I don't know why I had a dream about it. Oh, no, I had a dream about it, so I decided to make it. What does that tell you? They're, they're coming through to you to give you the message to write it all down. So who was the very first man to develop, to develop free energy? Well, it should have been Tesla. Exactly. Should have been. What, how, why did we, why did the extraterrestrials allow the government to take Tesla out of it completely? See, that I don't have an answer for. Exactly. Because when Tesla developed something, one man got in the way, and it wasn't another man's jealousy. It was a man that developed fossil fuel. The man that started, that kept Tesla from developing any further, and that was J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan destroyed Tesla's career. If J.P. Morgan supported him financially, we would have free energy. We would actually be able to do so many things in this world that to us, we're going like, wow, mind-boggling. But how was it that Tesla was able to develop so many different unique types of, of free energy items? And he had so many diagrams crates and crates and crates and crates of them, all kinds of things that he's developed, and yet they got missing. There's going to be so many people out there, that are, and they're going to use all of Tesla's work. And how did they use all of, his, all of Tesla's work? How, what did they use to, what did they develop it for? Military means. Everything was used to be used in the military first. 
They're going to use it for war. They're going to use it to be the conquerors of the world. So it was another Trump that decided to do this. Okay, long before, long before your president, another Trump decided to develop it. And so he decided to make decisions. Then there was another man, another part of the world, and said, well, I'm going to make this, but out of that. And that was up in Serbia. Okay, so they protected their, now, yes, uh, Tesla was Serbian, but instead of them releasing more information to help share the story of Tesla's work, they're keeping it in the museum, but they're not letting us actually see any of his work. Why? Because eventually it's going to be used for military means if necessary. Because they, they, if you look at it, as often as you try to say, well, can we see some of the pieces? Because Serbia is so worried, and Serbians back then, those years during against Croatia, and there was many, many great wars back in the late 40s or 50s, and they all hated each other. It was because of the coups between two presidents. So again, war development. So this is where people are trying to separate anything that relates to war, anything that's developed as militarized means. They want to make it more of a peaceful mean. Now why the extraterrestrials are trying to give us little bits and pieces of information through our minds, conscious, subconscious, to use it in a good way. But if someone decides to use it militarized, they're going to shut it down. The Anunnaki will shut it down because these new group of people, they're peacekeepers. They're the ones, they're the ones that are trying to keep this planet clean, protected. Anytime there's any type of nuclear threat, and I'll be honest with you, this is what I was told. Zale told me this himself. Any way of nuclear threat between any country, they will step in and they will knock, knock out those rockets. And guess what? He was right. Back in 2000, he told me that. And you'll actually see some of the old film. And I actually, someone sent me a couple of films. And they said that there was unknown uh, ships flying across the sky blowing up the rockets where the nuclear uh, sites were and they cannot be used. They shut them down. So no one will be ever be able to, to because I'll tell you, this is why CL says, no way are you going to be using the nuclear, nuclear rockets. It's because you use one rocket on this world, everybody dies. One nuclear, one nuclear uh, rocket in this world, everybody dies. You know why? Because it screws up the alignment of the planets. On their planet, it's only three quarters left. They have the great wars in their in their planetary system, and a big chunk of the planet is all is all exploded out. They can't replace that, but they survived on it. And it's because of the great wars between others. There are, there are civil wars, just like the North and the South. So they don't want this to repeat itself on this earth. They said, this is our third time around that humankind has made mistakes. And, or sorry, twice before humankind has made mistakes. And they said, the third time, that's it. Humankind will not exist. And they're making sure that we need to be more respectful of this planet. It's not humankind. They can replace us anytime. The planet is what needs to be taken care of. It's important because it's part of a solar system 
alignment in the planetary systems. It, this can be they can turn this into a star, and they don't give a rat's ass about us. Now, we've got a few minutes left. I'd like to get your thoughts on um, many of the researchers I've had. I've had a lot of contactees and experiencers, and um, one of the recurring themes is hybridization, uh, that there's reports of people meeting a hybrid child or seeing hybridization experiments. Um, I'm not sure what races would be doing this, but is this something that you have come across? All races have hybrid children. Um, even I've got hybrid kids somewhere on some other planets. I know it. You do. Anytime that you're interested in it, that means that you're also a father of it. Okay? And they'll, they'll maintain your need, or their need of you, up until you're about 40, 45. After that, they don't need you anymore. Because they want to take someone who is viral, not someone who can't do it anymore, and uh, they'll and they'll keep on using a lot of humankind. Anytime that there's a person, a human, like say some guys will say, "Well, have my my abductions were were traumatic. Traumatic. Uh, mine were very bad. I was I was in I was absolutely scared because humankind does not understand examinations. Plus, there are some." extraterrestrial beings that don't know how to examine properly and some of their tools are very uh, intrusive not proper but they're very intrusive and so they can become very painful but mind you after they're done examining you the scar is no longer there very little of it right uh, and I've seen a lot of people with scars on their bodies from actually having after having examinations so everybody's different, but hybridism, I mean, there are more hybrid kids. And uh, having to go to Laughlin, like the, the, when I was asked to be part of the uh, presentation for Laughlin, Nevada, for this February, um, people could be very surprised when I mentioned just uh, when I'm going to introduce a few words that we're going to get an attention from people that are not from here and that they will stand up and introduce, introduce themselves to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, could you just give us um, a brief, maybe a brief description of what you will be presenting at the conference? Um, I'm going to be there and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Uh, well, beginning of my story and also showing you what they look like and what they're expecting from this earth to um, how we need to take care of it. And um, Ziel has a way of communicating to me. And that's why the, this one of the nasal passages is there because he makes me listen to him and I hear them. All I do is ask them and they'll give me an answer. So... Uh, there's word, like I said, I'll have words coming out of my mouth, and I have no idea what they mean. But that's how he makes it easy for humankind to understand. Very good. And uh, before you head out tonight, tell the audience where they can find your work, your website, um, anything like that. If they want to find me, I have a website called uh, uh, whiteskycloud.com, whiteskycloud.com, and uh, somebody else is there. 
Uh, if they want to know anything about me, just check out my website and just to get an idea. And also, if they want, if they have any questions I ask, if they can always email me. I also have a Facebook page, Derek White Sky Cloud. Make me a friend on Facebook. I can always update you. Um, and I also have another show called Between Two Worlds Radio, which goes on Thursday nights at uh, 6 o'clock Pacific, and that's 8 o'clock Central, 9 o'clock Eastern. And so you'll probably see me tomorrow night. Very good. Yeah. Looking forward to it. And uh, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on. We covered uh, ETs and extraterrestrials. I want to get more into the spirit world next time I have you on. So, yeah, definitely we're going to have to do this again. No problem. Enjoy the little guys. <laughs> All right. You have a good one.